Nice to be with all of you this evening. I'd like to continue uh, this evening speaking about uh, a Dharma-centered view, just piggybacking a little bit on Sharda. And from this Dharma-centered view, I'd like us to take a loving look at the uh, the experience of ourselves, the nature of self, specifically at the idea of ourselves, the what we call self-view, or what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti. This word, this phrase Sakaya Ditti, self-view, uh, is a reminder that this even though there may be a felt sense of self, even though each of us has a unique individuality, and as James and Sharda both spoke about how that sense of our individual being here, how that's been forged by all the conditions of, really, of all time, how, how conditions from beginningless time have come together to, to form each of us individually and and it's actually quite a wonderful reflection to realize that, we, that there really is no beginning to each of us. That we think of it as just as an idea. We think we began at the moment that we came into the world screaming. Or that we maybe began at the moment our parents looked at each other lovingly. And then whatever came from that. But really... Our parents were formed by their parents and by their culture, by their religion, by their views, by earth, air, fire, water. All of us uh, have been formed by, forged by what you could call non-personal conditions. Yet here we are individually. We never want to deny that. But the idea of ourselves the one we imagine ourselves to be, that one, is, um, that one is a view. And as, and as views go, they are, um, they're very vulnerable. They are very, they are, there's nothing there. There's, there's nothing behind them. They're just, it's ideas. So we've been pointing again and again on this retreat to what your immediate, your experience in the Dharma is. And you could say what that experience is beyond just your views about yourself. To learn to experience yourself on the, the level of we could call it the level of simplicity or the level of reality where you are either seeing, you're hearing, you're smelling, you're tasting, you're feeling, or you're thinking. And that's really all that's ever going on. That's the totality of our being. And often when we can get a little bit of a glimpse of ourselves experienced that simply, free of 
or at least beyond just the idea of ourselves, we see that life in its immediacy, life in the Dharma, not the idea of it, but the Dharma is... It's, I'll put it this way. There's a sutra from the Mahayana school. It says, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. And as one of my teachers, H.W.L. Uh, Punja, says, you need the thoughts and past to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. So we've been getting little glimpses that right in the middle, no matter what our life situation is, no matter what it, our, our personal story is, that right in the middle of it, there is this, this, that, there is that which cannot really be put so easily into words. Probably the most we can say about ourselves on present evidence is, what can we say? I'm hearing, I'm seeing, I'm smelling, I'm tasting, I'm touching, I'm feeling, I'm thinking. But more than, even closer than that, mostly just say, I am. I'm awake, I'm aware. A- anybody say more than that? On, based on real time? So we see that life in reality is not quite as complicated as our life feels when it's experienced through the filter or through the view about ourselves. So tonight I'd like to, to talk about that view. We've been, we've been saying that, uh, or Sharda said so beautifully last night that we are shifting our view from a, from a view of self to a Dharma view. And you could say the whole of our practice, everything that we're doing here, is a movement. It's a movement from that narrow world of our self-view, Sakaya Ditti, which is often marked by a lot of uh, preoccupation, kind of absorption. It seems very, pretty generally very narrow. Uh, we often think of ourselves as small. We think of ourselves as often separate and cut off from the flow of life. The metaphor that's used in the Bhagavad Gita is that we often think of ourselves as a wave, some, uh, the, a wave on the ocean, but somehow this, our particular wave has gotten separated from the ocean. And we fall into this, this delusion and we forget that we are, uh, that we are immersed in the, in the very um, ocean that we're searching for. As I think it was Kabir who says, oh, how I laugh when I hear that the fish in the water is thirsty. You don't understand that what's most alive lives inside your own house. And consequently, you run from one holy city to the next with a confused look, often trying to find our way back to the ocean and overlooking the, that sense of interbeing, that sense of being 
immersed in all of life, right where it's touching us. As one poet puts it, part of our practice, and at least I, I translate our practice based on the words of this poem, is it's easing ourselves into the boundless, right where it touches us. Reposing in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That's from the poem called The, the Little Duck. The ducks, you know, just sit right in the middle of it. They, sit, they have a Dharma view. They, the, you know, the waves are flowing and, and what do they do? They sit right down in it. They repose in the immediate as if it were infinity. They ease themselves into the boundless. So that's what we've been doing all along. But the view of ourselves, that narrow view, is that we're cut off. And so the whole of our practice is to come out of that narrow view, to widen, come into the, you could call it the wider field of, of the Dharma. So it's all about narrowing and widening, or being narrow and widening. So even right now, as you sit here in this room, the ordinary way that we think of ourselves, this is part of our self-view, is that our mind is in our head, even though no one's ever seen one there. And even our attention is somehow in our head, somewhere behind our eyes, and we're looking out. And that's where the, that's where the observation's coming from. But that's just seeing consciousness. But just play, using our visual field a little bit for a moment, just play with the idea that I am showing up within your mind. You're showing up within my mind. Everything in this room is part of the, the wider space of your own mind. So rather than the sense of me being in this little person being in this big room, and that's a conventional view that's quite useful, <laughs> But we're willing to look at things a little bit more, a little differently if we're, uh, if we're engaged in this inquiry, this meditative inquiry. We can experiment. Well, where's the inside and where's the outside? So does the inside stop with this body, with the edge of my body? And, and where does it, where, where is that inside and outside? So playing with this view, we can see that, that often in the, in the narrowness of our, even the perception that I'm living in my head, nobody's ever seen awareness in the head. If you opened up your head, you wouldn't find any awareness. But yet that's a, a kind of trance, and that's part of our view about ourselves as over here and you being over there, and that's conventional reality. But we want to look beyond that a little bit. Because that little view of separateness, it may seem innocent, but it gives rise to all kinds of, uh, of feelings of lack, you know, hunger, thirst, a deep longing to connect, and a forgetting, a forgetting that we, that we are when we actually let ourselves be simple and present, as you've discovered on this retreat, that you are connected to everything in every moment. 
And it is a quirk of our consciousness that believes that we are uh, disconnected. So even just for a moment to unfurl your mind and see everything is in your mind, where's the dividing point between us from that perspective? Where do you stop and the room begins? On direct experience. I actually didn't intend to go off on that. It's kind of fun, though. (laughs) (laughs) So in the middle of this immediate experience, we can ask again, you know, we often ask the question, who am I? But what are we right now in real time? What can you say about yourself if you don't consult your memory? So Sharda's talk inspired me to read this this passage about living in the world uh, tonight because it really, our understanding of where we live in the family of things, where we live in relationship to everything, determines a lot of whether we feel at home, content, or in that chronic state of lack, something missing. So this is from Ashvagosha where he said, the Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or resign from the world unless he or she feels called upon to do so. But the Dharma of the Buddha requires every person to free themselves from the illusion of ourselves, to cleanse one's heart, to give up one's dependency on pleasure, and to lead a life of righteousness. And whatever people do, whether they remain in the world as artisans, merchants, officers of the queen or king, or retire from the world and devote themselves to a life of meditation, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent, energetic. And if like the lotus flower, which grows out of muddy water, but remains untouched by the mud, they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, And if they live in the world, not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their minds. So we get to glimpse, moment by moment, a life of truth as opposed to a life of self. So that's why we keep pointing to what's actually right here. Where is the self right here, the self-view, when there is hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, thinking, and knowing of that? And how do you feel after your last view of self has passed, last thought about yourself has passed, and before the next one arises? Anybody willing to say out loud? How do you feel? Please. Uh, Empty or nothing, but in a good way. (laughs) Empty or nothing, but in a good way. Anybody else? Oh, oh, I'm going to repeat the question. Uh, What is your experience right now after your last 
thought of yourself has passed and before the next one comes. Peaceful. Peaceful. Empty, but in a good way. Anybody else? Please. Amazement. What's that? Amazement. Amazement. Beautiful. Free. Free. Present. Open. Open. Excited. What was that last one? Excited. Excited. Great. Endless potential. Endless potential. Exactly. Creative field of an open field of creative possibility. Exactly. Now that's you. That's you before you can remind yourself of what a puny, little, unworthy, unreliable, (laughs) hateful, not enough, insufficient beggar. (laughs) All those little ideas are what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, self-view. They are, they are, and our, our job here is not to say, oh, you're such an idiot for getting caught up in self-view and then building a new self-view about how ignorant you are. <laughs> but it's to look upon lovingly how it is that we go from this, all, all this potential, all of this open, this open field of creative possibility, of utter perfection and wakefulness and peace and freedom, which is fundamentally our nature right here. You didn't do a thing except for a moment remove your views. How do we go from that dharma-centered, natural, great peace and enter and into that feeling that something is wrong and something is wrong with me? And that's what I would like to look on lovingly because it's inevitable. Every single one of us, we would not be here if it wasn't for, we wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be human if we didn't have some confusion about who and what we are. And we wouldn't be human if we didn't at some point developmentally in the span of our life fall into a, a view, a, a case of mistaken identity. <laughs> Love saying that. Sharda, <laughs> uh. <laughs> this morning, highlighted a little bit in the instructions the, the feeling tone that accompanies every single moment's experience. Every single experience that arises through our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, our body, our mind comes accompanied with, it's conditioned, it's not personal, but it comes accompanied with an association that our mind makes with that experience as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. So I don't know how many of you walk past the, the stable, you know, venture that far away. But for many people, for, just for example, when you walk by and you smell the, the horse manure, 
that may give rise to some kind of, there's a feeling tone that arises with that. And for many people, it's an unpleasant feeling tone. For me, it's, it's pleasant. So just so you, it's just the conditioning. I grew up around horses, and so that has a positive association to me. So this, we're conditioned in this way. So not everything that we see is, is unpleasant is necessarily unpleasant for somebody else. Same with pleasant. But nevertheless, every experience that we have is conditioned to arise with one of those feeling tones. Now, you wouldn't think about it, but that, those little moments of things being associated with pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, that is the, the ground, that is the, the, you could say, the womb out of which that whole idea of yourself is born. How does that happen? That, that experience of pleasant, as Sharda mentioned this morning, I f- forgot exactly how she phrased it, but when that experience is associated with a pleasant feeling, there's a little charge in our mind that arises that, that we call liking. It's a kind of movement toward a le- little leaning toward that experience of liking. But we don't usually notice that moment of liking that moment of liking usually is followed by a moment of, of wanting to stay with it, leaning a little bit more, wanting more of it, wanting, to, wanting it to last. But then that, that leaning, that wanting, creates a little bit more internal pressure because as soon as there is a kind of wanting, there is a, a tension that builds in the body. That's the experience of... I call it the experience of suspended happiness, the experience of lack, the experience of unless I can hold to this or have more of it, I won't be happy. And that pressure that builds internally just from a simple moment of contact with a a pleasant experience, it hardens into a kind of pattern or it, it continues into a pattern of then having to release, some, release that tension, and it releases in the form of, I want this. I need it. I've got to have it. And in that little moment, all in our mind, this is just one little example. Uh, I, used to, I used to love, I used to live in, on 20th and Dolores Street in San Francisco. There are a lot of San Franciscans here. And... Sometimes at night, I would get a, a picture of a thought of double rainbow ice cream, which used to be the, the pinnacle of ice creams. We used to win the award. Thought would come into my mind. Mmm, double rainbow ice cream. Pleasant feeling and not a lot of mindfulness in some of those moments. And before I knew it, there was, want, there was liking, wanting. And I literally, after even being in, under my sheets, under those soft sheets, having enjoyed that entry. <laughs> the covers are off, the clothes are on, three flights of stairs into the car, driving up to 24th Street, into the ice cream parlor. I have entered into an entire incarnation of a hungry ghost who can't be satisfied. My mouth is little, my stomach is huge. And then I eat that ice cream 
and it goes, ah, oh, the whole thing, the whole pressure of that deflates. And I'm absolutely certain that that ice cream, you know, was, it was the secret to happiness. <laughs> but the whole time that I was on that mission, I had literally, one way of talking about it, I had incarnated into that internal drama of somebody who is coming from the past, passing through this present moment on my way to the source of all happiness in the future. And of course, I was tense because I wasn't absolutely certain everything would go the way I wanted it to. So you can, you can transplant this to anything that we get bound up in our mind and associate our happiness and well-being with getting or having or becoming. So that happened in a moment. A pleasant feeling, liking, wanting. I entered into the world of I'm somebody who needs to go get it and I have it. And, I, and then I'm standing on a rainy night in the middle of 24th Street after I've satisfied that hunger and now I start to feel a ki- the kind of emptiness, feel the unsatisfactoriness of having gotten out of my comfortable sheets, been carried along by that, that whole identity as, as somebody who's lacking what I need to feel happy. And I'm a little bit embarrassed and self-conscious. And I don't want to feel that, so I just conjure up another desire. If you know what I mean, that's what we do. So the same happens on retreat, this, this, um, this creating of ourselves based on some kind of moment of contact. We, since we introduce the hindrances, uh, the hindrance of desire and aversion, these things that cover over our natural, great radiance and peace. We see on retreat, there it's sometimes in the form of what we call the Vipassana romance, the VR, or somebody, somebody lights your fancy, you like the way they walk, the way they're, they, uh, you like their shoes. <laughs> You like the way they throw their shawl elegantly over their... <laughs> I guess I'm giving myself away. <laughs> pleasant moment, pleasant moment of contact, pleasant feeling, liking, and literally within five seconds, that liking turns into a whole idea of myself as having come I'm now, I went from perfect peace, being mindful moment to moment of one of the six sense experiences, and now I'm this hungry person who sees that, that other person as the secret to everything that I ever wanted. And within five seconds, I have dated that person, I have mated that person, I've married that person, I've traveled the world, And by this, and of course, all this happens in my mind. And because I'm in a constant state of hunger in regard to whether or not 
this person will fulfill all my dreams. I'm in a state of anxiety and worry and I'm absolutely convinced that I will never be happy unless I can somehow complete this journey to meet my newest soulmate. (laughs) Now what really happened? Absolutely nothing. I just incarnated in a dream in an imaginary version of myself going through time on my way to a perfect marriage. I have fallen into a kind of delusion. I have replaced one thought as connected with another and, they, and because perhaps mindfulness didn't arise to interrupt that little stream of, of thinking, just, just to notice it. But noticing usually interrupts it. But because mindfulness didn't rise up to notice that, it was bent by its nature to create a whole imaginary reality. That one who we imagine ourselves to be in that little drama, that little profound search, that one does not even exist. And so in so many ways from the time we're born we enter into ideas of ourselves. And those ideas are often determined by reactions that we had to pleasant things, being mirrored or loved, or unpleasant things, being traumatized, or being told we were unlovable, or that we were not we were not good enough, not you know, you've heard all of this before. This is the the chronic message that we get both from the the kind of insidious message that we're supposed to meet some kind of impossible ideal and just the natural tendency to to uh, create a sense of ourselves based on our bouncing off of other other people and other experiences i often tell on retreats about my daughter molly Who's having, who just had her 12th birthday yesterday. And she's, um, she's, as I often describe her, she's just so quintessentially Molly, so quintessentially uh, just a perfect expression of life, no other way than she could be given all the things that have influenced her and brought her to be, just like each of us. We all have our own version of Molliness. That's what we are, basically, essentially before we can think, we're just ourselves. But I noticed at three years old, even though it hasn't really kept Molly from being Molly, but I saw the way she looked around at her friends who she was going to nursery school with, I think it was three or four. She noticed that most, she had curly brown hair, most of them had blonde straight hair. And I noticed her then start to pull on her hair, trying to straighten it and begin the process of what we call um, comparing mind, mana, conceit, the, I, the view that I, the sense of being, being measurable, that I'm somehow less than or I'm greater than or I'm equal to, just that sense of measuring. 
Now that whole little measuring mind that Molly did, that every one of us does, that, that measuring, that person that's being measured is the imaginary version of us. It's Sakaya Ditti. It's a self, it's a view. Now, can you feel anything on present evidence that's measurable in you? Now, is there anything lacking in you? Now, often the measurement is, is driven by this feeling of lack. It's, feeling by, it's driven by the feeling of, of I'm, I'm not okay the way I am. How do we know that? We need the past and thoughts. We need a view about ourselves to know that. As the poet Hafez said, he said what is in his poem called um, Stop Being, it's, I think it's called Stop Being So Religious. He says, what do people who are sad have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there and do a strange wail and worry or worship, excuse me. He says, what's the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. And those of you who know me know that I wrote a second verse. What do people who are worried and anxious have in common? They have all built a shrine to the future and often go there and do a strange wail and worry. (laughs) What's the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. So that that view about ourselves is often based on some kind of, of idea, something that happened to us. And it's inevitable. Your parents said, you're this. They praised you for something. They ignored you for other things. They, they reminded you that they kept calling you by your name. And you said to yourself again and again, I'm so-and-so. And I'm glad that you did. Because this is inevitable and it's natural to have a view about ourselves. A self-view. I am so-and-so. That's our name. And when I say my name, I have a certain felt experience that goes with that. And it's, if it's just our name... We're, it's mostly we're in touch with our essence. But then when we say, I am so-and-so and I'm not quite sufficient, then what happens? Just even a thought, there's something wrong. Ever, do you ever have any thought that there's something wrong? <laughs> like I'm... I'm, I'm not enough or I'm hungry. I'm, I don't mean hunger in the natural, organic sense. I'm, I'm unsatisfied. I'm, I'm a terrible person. I'm, a, I'm, I'm ill. Even that identity even though it has a certain kind of conventional truth. If I live in that 
idea of myself and just keep experiencing the world through that idea, I become very small. I debated about whether to tell this story again, but it seems like a natural place to do it. I, I went to visit a teacher named Punja in India many years ago who had a, who was, had a very keen sense of being able to, to tease out the difference between what our immediate experience is and, and the view about ourselves that plays through our mind. And when I say that, I, I think of the words of, of James J. Audubon where he says, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. But when I went to see Punjaji, I, I, as many people do when they travel to India, I got um, some kind of virus, some kind of bacterial infection, and and uh, I was bedridden, and I was, you know, discharging from every which way, and <laughs> and feverish, and I finally, and you know, he sent me food and. He was living on one side of the Ganges River. I was staying on the other side of the Ganges River. And finally, I was well enough to make my way to see him because I came to India all the way to see him. And I was literally kind of dragging my body along. I was well enough to get up, but I was just dragging my body along. And I was just so uh, uncomfortable and... And I finally walked down two bridges and across the bridge and over another street and then climbed the... Well, before I went to his house, I bought some bananas. And then some monkeys came and stole my bananas. And then I walked to the house and then up the stairs. And I got into his, his place and, and he looked at me very intently, as he often did, with a little impish grin on his face. And he said, how are you feeling? And I said, uh, I'm feeling much better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me even more intently and he said, where is sick? (laughs) And of course it threw me back on what I am, what I was on present evidence, not just the story of myself, and I couldn't find sick. There were some symptoms and that was maybe a a decent description of some symptoms, but I couldn't find sick. And I realized I had incarnated. I hadn't just had symptoms, just body sensations, convulsions or whatever, (laughs) sounds, sights, smells, tastes. I I had added to it, very innocently, a whole identity of some ways, poor me, I'm sick. And then I couldn't, and then it was gone. It literally vanished in that moment, the identity. And even though I still had symptoms, there was this surge of um, vitality. There was literally the reconnecting again with the inexhaustible juice that is always here, but is being literally depressed by our case of mistaken identity. And without that view of self, symptoms were there, but I was peaceful, non-reactive, not adding, not compounding, 
um, the basic dukkha of having the uh, the, uh, the stress of having a bacterial infection. So when each time we're born into one of these little identities, self-view, we're faced with a feeling of that feeling of being a little cut off, not quite okay. And and that identity is um, is a is a field of of insecurity. Because once I'm born into that feeling of, of not okay, then out of love for myself, we always do it, out of love for myself, I want to find a solution. I want to go and find a way to feel better. And often, of course, in our culture, the way to feel better is to, is to uh, go shopping is to dis- distract ourselves, is to um, fantasize, is to, is to, or dwell in, in, a, in our memory of a time where we felt better. Uh, but usually, out of love for ourselves, we, our mind goes in search. So that the story of me is always bound up in time. It's always bound up in going from the past through this experience that I'm having in the present on my way to the source of relief, which is the imagined future. And I say the imagined future because the future doesn't really exist. It, it never arrives because time is, is always... <laughs> what was it? I thought there was something strange going on. Yeah. See, even the beeper in some way is, is outside of time. It's just as it is. We're always, our real experience is really what you could call an unfolding now. We've never, ever, ever in our entire life left the present moment, what we call the present moment. We've only imagined that we did. Our practice, our Dharma view, helps us remember and return to the place we've actually never left, which is kind of funny. This reminds me of the teacher Ramana Maharshi. He said, there's no special... There's no special effort that's necessary to realize this freedom. All efforts are for eliminating the present obscuration to this truth. And that's what we've been doing. We've been basically brushing the dust of memory so that we could actually experience the simple sense experience and see that that we're not as bad as we think. We're not as lost as we think. He goes on, he says, all efforts are for eliminating the present obscuration to the truth. A lady is wearing a necklace around her neck. 
She forgets it, imagines it to be lost, and impulsively, impulsively looks for it here, there, everywhere. Not finding it, she asks her friends if they found it anywhere. Until one kind friend points to her neck and tells her to feel the necklace around her neck. The seeker does so and feels happy that the necklace is found. (laughs) Again, when she meets her friends, they ask her if her lost necklace was found. She says yes to them, as if it were lost and later recovered. (laughs) Her happiness at rediscovering it around her neck is the same as if some lost property was recovered. In fact, she never lost it nor recovered it. And yet she was once miserable and now she's happy. <laughs> so this, you could say, open secret, this, this capacity that we have, this natural state, this dharma-centered view where we are enough as we are, gets easily obscured by the, the personality view. But yet that personality view, which is, which is very insecure because it's, always, because it's based on time and time is running out, and it's based on the future, that puts us into a state of suspended happiness. Um, for that reason, we, we get so shaky so vulnerable. And as Sharda said last night, the only way to respond to ourselves and, our, and the vulnerability of our being is, is to regard ourselves with mercy and kindness. This happens innocently. It happens based on those little reactions. It's been happening since we were born. That, we, that our mind goes into an effusion of, of fantasy of, a, of, a, of a, a better world, a better life for us. And it's not saying that we shouldn't do everything we can to create a better world and a better life, especially where we see there are things that, that we, where we are untrained and we could do things better, etc., etc. But often our, our search for a better life just becomes a, what could be called a continuous act of postponing. Just endlessly waiting. And, uh, and that's the state of, of becoming, the state of craving, the state of hunger and thirst that the Buddha suggested was the root cause of what turns on our already stressful existence because of the basic facts of life that what turns it into mental suffering is that continuous desire that takes the shape of constantly wanting things to be different than the way they are and being in a state of, of becoming, having our whole identity oriented toward where we're going instead of where we are human doings instead of human beings. Kabir said, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. 
So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. So as long as, as one teacher put it, Nisargadat, as long as we believe that we need things becoming to make us happy, then we should also believe in their ab- in their, that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction, for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as there's nothing wrong with me. Try that on for a moment. There's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. Try that on for a moment. Do you really have anything to worry about on present evidence? See, the worrying mind is the, is the, is the narrative of Sakaya Ditti, of self-view. I'm somebody who comes from the past, passing through the present, on my way to the source of, of whether life will work out for me or not. All the while, Life is working out for you. It's totally working out for you in real time. But our view about ourselves, the conviction that something's lacking, keeps us in a, in a trance. And that trance keeps our bodies in a state of agitation and vulnerability. Let me just continue. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the purpose of meditation is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. Which experience? The experience of being open, empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It's like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in this openness, an emptiness of, of all content, just free. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. Very different than the conviction there's something wrong. Something wrong makes our worlds very small. So if a few things make our, create that feeling of, of vulnerability, shakiness, to have our sense of well-being based on what, how things, a time that doesn't even happen, that, that creates a lot of un- discomfort. And I, this identity view is also very much tied for most of us to our to our physical body, which is obviously it's aging, can't control it, can't tell it not to get sick, not, get, not to get old, 
not to die. <laughs> it's operating according to his own laws. I loved what the Lewis, was it Lewis Thomas? that James read the other night. I, I want to get a copy of that. But I brought along, it was inspired me to read some other factoids about the human body to re- remind us that, that having an identity with something that is so utterly selfless, utterly a conditioned machinery, uh, having our identity tied to it, is a, it's a source of insecurity. So j- just a few little things. Human beings spend a third of their lives sleeping. Every person has a unique tongue print. There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel 100 miles per hour. It takes 17 muscles to smile, 43 to frown. takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. Most people think, blink about 25 times a minute, 20,000 times a day. Average person speaks about 31,500 words a day. Every breath, we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc. The average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined the DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit into an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. That is from the earth to the sun and back again 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells, red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Humans sh- shed 600,000 particles of skin every year, about 1.5 pounds a year. By age 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. <laughs> Most dust, most dust particles in your house are made from dead skin. The body, makes, the body makes a new stomach lining every five days, makes a new liver every six weeks, replaces new head hair every two to five years, replaces new eyebrows that consist of 450 hairs every three to five months. Body grows new skin once a month. Body replaces with new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 cells of your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to this sentence. So in, a, in any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? <laughs> and because our identity is so strong with our body, it's, um, our identity gets very much tied to our body's age. And this is a source of, of, of tension and vulnerability as well. As many comedians have highlighted, one in particular was a beautiful passage from the comedian Larry Miller. And this was for many years attributed to, this is all about becoming. The, this was attributed to George Carlin, but it was actually the comedian Larry Miller. He says, do you realize that the only time in our lives when we like to get old is when we're kids? If you're less than 10 years old, you're so excited about aging, you think in fractions. (laughs) How old are you? I'm four and a half. You're never 36 and a half. You're four and a half going on five. That's the key. You get into your teens, now they can't hold you back. 
You jump to the next number or even a few ahead. How old are you? I'm going to be 16. You could be 13, but hey, you're going to be 16. And then the greatest day of your life, you become 21. Even the words sound like a ceremony. You become 21, yes. But then you turn 30. Ooh, what happened there makes you sound like bad milk. He turned. We had to throw him out. <laughs> There's no fun now. You're just sour, a sour dumpling. What's wrong? What's changed? You become 21, you turn 30, then you're pushing 40. Whoa, put on the brakes. It's all slipping away before you know it. You reach 50 and your dreams are gone. But wait, you make it to 60. You didn't think you would. You become 21, turn 30, push 40, reach 50, and make it to 60. You've built up so much speed that you hit 70. <laughs> After that, it's a day-by-day day thing. You, you, hit, you hit Wednesday. <laughs> you get into your 80s, and every day is a complete cycle. <laughs> you hit lunch, you turn 4.30, you reach, you reach bedtime, and it doesn't end there. Into your 90s, you're going backwards. I was just 92. <laughs> then a strange thing happens. If you make it to 100, you become a little kid again. I'm 100 and a half. <laughs> May you all make it to a healthy 100 and a half. This is why George Carlin actually says that uh, the most unfair thing about life is the way it ends. I mean, life is tough. It takes a lot, up a lot of your time. What do you get in the end? A death. <laughs> What's that, a bonus? I think the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first, get it out of the way. <laughs> then you live in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch. You go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You do drugs, alcohol, you party. You get ready for high school. <laughs> You go to grade school, you spend your last, you become a kid, you play, you have no responsibilities. You become a little baby, you go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating in spa-like conditions. <laughs> Central heating, room service on tap, and you finish off as an orgasm. <laughs> I hate to say or put what we're doing here in terms of, of returning to that, that beginning, but in a sense, that we, that's what we're doing. We are returning to that ever-present openness and clarity, that innocence, that, that, that excitement, that openness, that unlimited possibility that, that is ever-waiting. So since I've run out of time, I think I'll just end with a poem by Derek Walcott, which just captures a little bit of 
our practice. I had intended really to just keep elaborating on looking, looking lovingly at how it is that we end up caught up in our imaginary view of ourselves and feeling so vulnerable and then to hopefully make it so obvious that uh, how we need to regard ourselves is uh, with greater kindness and mercy. There are just so many things that we could talk about how we fall into delusion. But I think it's enough to know, at least for you, the difference between your immediate and direct experience and the, the narrative that plays in your mind. That they, they, uh, The narrative is inevitable and it's wonderful. Our stories are interesting. They are formed also by all the conditions of our life, but it's really just a partial truth of you. You're so much more in real time, beyond description. So I leave you with Derek Walcott's poem, Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who is yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. So without changing position, just feast on your life. Thank you for listening. Enjoy your Dharma-centered view of openness and mindfulness, knowing that you could not have this Dharma-centered view if it wasn't for this individuality in this body. So enjoy your body, your steps, and don't let your mind leave your body. Thank you. Please continue.